Thanks for listening. Learn more about our church and support by giving to the Mission of the Oaks at www.theoakscommunitychurch.org. Our scripture reading this week comes from Proverbs. It is from Proverbs chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, as well as chapter 8, verses 32 through 36, if you want to follow along with your Bible. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And now, O sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise and do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. This is the word of the Lord. Peace be with you. Let's pray as we dive into this new series in the book of Proverbs. Heavenly Father, we are humbled and grateful to be in here this morning, um, to sit, to sing, to reflect on your word. I ask, uh, Father, that um, you open our ears, you open our eyes, that you open our hearts to receive um, the good news of what, you're, what you've done and what you're continuing to do among us. And um, I ask, Father, that you uh, help me and you empower me to serve uh, these lovely people as well as uh, serve you and to glorify you in what I say and how I behave and, and just really the way in which I present your word to them. I do not take that lightly. And so thank you for this time. And uh, I ask that by your spirit you settle our scattered hearts and minds and so that we can, we can take in what we need to and confront what we need to confront and so that we can be encouraged in what we, we so desperately need to be encouraged in with great hope, um, with great love, and with great gratitude we say in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, many years ago, before I was at the, working in a, at, at the church, I uh, was uh, kind of a middle management job and, 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 and just in the marketplace in the business sector, and I was promoted at one point. This is like my early uh, 20s. I don't remember the exact age. and I was promoted by my managing director at the time, and I was, I was um, promoted by this managing director to take this particular managing director's position um, and he, while well, he just moved on somewhere else entirely in the company. And um, shortly after tr- uh, the transition, uh, it, it really just a matter, in a matter of a couple months, um, he just got really cross with me. And um, he, 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 he was saying some pretty nasty things. He was sending me some pretty nasty emails. 
and, um, and, and about something really rather small and rather insignificant, some decisions that I was making, at least that's how I saw it. And I was really put off. I mean, I was, I, my feelings were hurt. I was stung by the whole thing. Uh, I was really shocked by the harsh criticism um, because, you know, in a lot of ways, I really looked up to him. I mean, it, 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 I liked him. Um, I admired him. He was much older than me. And, 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 I, you know, and he gave me the job, you know. He, he, he communicated that he believed in me and he was promoting me and all of that. And so I was just so hurt. Um, and so I took uh, that hurt, my hurt ego, my fragile ego, and I took it that and I confided in my new managing director at that time about the incident. And to which I can remember him sitting me down and simply saying, look, Matthew, this department uh, that you're over, this was his baby for a long time. He built the thing. And he built it from the ground up. He built it from its start and its inception. And the fact that you're now over it just feels threatening to him. And you just need to ignore him. And you need to ignore his correction. Uh, you just need to keep moving forward, and you'll just be fine. That's not too unlike many ordinary stories that many of you have had maybe in the workplace, I don't know. But he, the reason why I tell that little story is sometimes I wonder if that is what people think about God and what happened in the garden in Genesis 3. And what I mean is, is that you've got this, you've got this beautiful creation story where man uh, and woman, they dwell uh, with God in peace um, and this wonderful relationship, and they've got this beautiful garden to kind of govern and rule. Uh, it's really just quite beautiful and poetic in the way it describes it. And then you get to Genesis 3, and you get this serpent, this, this, the deceiver that, that gets in there, and he, he messes with it. And he puts this question you know, in, in Eve's ears and Eve's head about God's intentions and character. Um, and this is what he said to the woman, and this is Genesis 3, verses 1 through 5. He says, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, well, you, surely, you, you, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And hear this, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now we, of course, as you probably know, we were duped by that lie. And by eating it, we tried to supplant, I would say, we, we, start, we tried to supplant our humanness and take on the role of God. And the serpent wasn't just tempting us, I don't think, to just doubt um, our place and our role, although he was doing that, but he was also tempting us to doubt God's character, I think. And the serpent had us thinking that we weren't good as we were, as humans, fully known and, and fully loved. Like, that wasn't enough for us. And that wasn't going to be good for you and me. And something else needed to happen. And so he had the first children of God thinking, I think, that God is petty, that God, that God is controlling, God is coercive, and that God has a fragile ego. 
like my former managing director. <laughs> but God wasn't threatened like a fragile, egoed boss. God, and I think that the rest of the storyline of the Bible is really pointing this out, God was hurt like a parent, like the creator that he is. Because in trying to, to be something and someone we're not, it led to innumerable issues for us that you and I are experiencing and living out right now. It led to all sorts of issues and brokenness, and ultimately it led to separation and death, which was the worst part of it. And the real issue, I think, at stake was this, that our, the first children, and, and then we have inherited this ourselves, but the real issue at stake was choosing to live in this world independently. And what I mean by that is it's probably better said this way. That we thought we could live out, we thought we could have wisdom and discernment without the designer. We, in other words, we chose a path of trying to define reality, trying to define right and wrong, trying to define good and bad without a surrendered, trusting, loving, and reliant relationship. That's the mistake that was made, and it's the mistake that continues to be made. In many ways, both religious, I think, and, and self-proclaimed non-religious types of people in, in the culture around us are choosing this path all the time, right? You look around, you don't have to look far, and you can probably look in your own life, and you're seeing this still just, this is the decay in which you're seeing all around you, all the way from politics to the marriage bed. It's everywhere. This idea that I can define reality, that I can, that I can be independent from from someone much larger than me, giving me a sense of instruction. And you see it on our, our, our horrible hatred and, or, or automatic distrust of authority. It's weaved through everything. In a funny way, this is funny, this is trivial and funny, but in a funny way, it, this path that we choose gets me, this path is in me. When I, I get in trouble all the time when I step right into the middle of a Barbie Dreamhouse play session with my daughter. When I, when I you know, inject myself right into the middle of it, and I, what I do is, is I start assigning names and roles to all the characters in the house, trying to be the good father that I am. And when I do this, I get, I get, I get in awful trouble. She looks at me like I'm a fool, right? Her face, if you could see it, screams, you have no idea what you're talking about. I've built this, you know? That's not who he is. That's not who she is, you know? Know your place, Dad. Know your place. And so I've learned to step into the Barbie Dreamhouse world with fear and trepidation. <laughs> See, today we start this series in the book of Proverbs. It's about wisdom, gaining wisdom, becoming wise people. Wisdom in the uh, wisdom literature of the Bible, wisdom, it means, the word means operating skillfully as you navigate life. It's, it's not less than knowledge, it's just that it's much more than mere knowledge. It's, it's knowing how to use knowledge skillfully in the various situations that you come across in life. And we, we, we call the series uh, Recovering Our Humanity, Recovering Your Humanity. That's what I actually like to think is you're doing when you read the, the wisdom literature. Uh, when you open up a book like Proverbs, you open up a book like Job, or you open up a book like uh, Psalms even, really, if you if you open up a, a book like Ecclesiastes, what are you doing? Because those are books maybe some of you are like, don't read as often because they're strange. The language is strange. Hebrew poetry is strange. 
But I would submit that you're, you're learning to recover what was lost. You're learning to recover your humanity. I could have just as easily named it this. You're not God. That I could have named the series that. Um, and that would have got the right message across as well. But that sounds snarky and way too obvious, and then people would just tune it out. Um, interestingly, uh, the Bible <laughs> isn't just a story about people doing really bad things and then getting rescued uh, by this merciful God and a Savior named Jesus, although that's the main through line. But it also just has these instructions on how to navigate ordinary realities of life, which is incredibly helpful. Instructions on things like money, instructions on things like love, instructions on things like friendship and justice. And this is what you were told, like you read kind of some opening lines of the book, and this is what you're being told in the opening lines. Proverbs is a book of instructions for, quote, wise dealing. Wise dealing. It's, it's instructions for knowledge, but it's also instructions in ethics, you know, righteousness, equity, justice. That's the thing. And the, in the wisdom literature, um, you're, you're, you're not just learning how to, how to be smart and navigate life. You're also learning how uh, to be good. Good not only for the sake of God, but for the sake of other people. And so um, this is what you're doing when you open up a book like uh, Proverbs. Uh, but b- before <laughs> we unpack the book and get into the specifics of of these instructions today, I, really today is just simply kind of an introduction for you. And, and what I want to do is, is just kind of help us understand when you open up a book of Proverbs, the opening chapters of the book of Proverbs really just wants to get you kind of prepared for reading the book. It's really about what I want to talk about and what I want to try to unpack today is just like what's your entry point for the wisdom literature of the Bible, particularly a book like Proverbs. The first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs is just an introduction for you. It's really what it's meant to be. It's a catalog. The first nine chapters of Proverbs is a catalog of lectures, like personified as a conversation between parents and a child. Here, you'll hear it in the first uh, beginning of each chapter in these. It's like hero son, hero daughter, hero son, hero hero daughter. These are the, it's it's like instructions for the youth. And why not nine chapters for an introduction, you know? Why, why such a long, drawn-out introduction to a, a book? Well, I think it's this. I think that the author wants to get this basic principle embedded into our, into our heads and into our hearts as we enter in. This, a basic principle uh, that if you don't get it inside of you, no amount of instruction will ever change you. No amount... Of, 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 of education or knowledge or pieces of advice or suggestions or commands, any of that. No amount of information is going to have a, make a lick of difference in your life if you don't have a particular controlling principle inside of your mind. And here's what it is, and it's really simple. The wise people, wise people have a receptivity about them. Wise people have a receptivity about them. In other words, they can take in correction because they know they might be wrong. You know those people that walk in the room and they're like, just never wrong? It's not you because you're never wrong, right? Wise people 
have this receptivity, this teachability about them. They know they could be wrong. They know they oftentimes are wrong. Or in, at least they know that they don't know the right way all the time. Over and over and over again in the introduction of the book of Proverbs, in various forms, the wise are talked about as people, as someone who hears, listens, and can take criticism or guidance on, on how to properly see life. The fool, on the other hand, always turns away from it. And you'll, you'll, you'll hear that come up over and over and over again in a book like Proverbs. In verse 7, the fool is said to actually despise wisdom and instruction. The word instruction is repeated often and can mean discipline and training. Simple and straightforward enough, right? Be someone who listens. Be someone who is teachable. That seems simple and straightforward for us, and we can say, yes, got that, I do that. Not so fast. Not so fast. Fools are broken down into personified types in Proverbs, and I think it's worth exploring for a little bit. There's three types in the book of Proverbs for the fool. Scoffers, the simple, and stubborn. First, we'll talk about the scoffer. This is the person who has a prideful sophistication about themselves. And it typically comes across as cynicism or just mockery of everything around them. Your translation might say mocker. They... <laughs> They are, the, they are the classic iconoclast of every party. Remember that person? Do you know that person? They, they're always making fun of people that they deem less educated or knowledgeable. They sometimes aren't the loud ones, though, so don't, don't be confused, okay? I'm not, if, you get, if all you do is have the vision of the loud bully in the room, you're missing the, the, the bigger, fuller, broader picture of this because they're not always sometimes the loud one in the room. Sometimes they have this quiet smugness about them. In other words, like I would say this, that their, their lack of participation in silent protest is actually a thin disguise for their pride arrogance. These are characters, sometimes like when we watch film and TV, these are some of the characters we absolutely love. Um, characters like Sherlock Holmes. Characters like um, Tony Stark in Iron Man. Don Draper, you know, in Mad Men. But along with our enjoyment of them, we also know this about the scoffer and the mocker, the sophisticated, prideful, arrogant types. This is what we, they're, they're also wildly usually successful, but here's the thing. We also, underneath, um, we know that they're sharp wit, underneath all that sharp wit and the worldly success, they're deeply detached and flawed relationally. That's what's sad about them. It's causing hurt for them and, and for the, all the people in their wake. And until the scoffer, the mocker, until the, the sophisticated person that, that prides themselves in their education and makes fun of everybody else, until they see their wounds got them into their cynicism, their wounds is what's driving them to make fun of everybody else. Until they recognize that, until they see that, that that is what has turned them into this prideful, sophisticated type. They're never going to actually heal. You also have the simple. The simple. This is not someone who lives a simple life. I want to be clear. 
So don't be confused. And by the way, it has nothing to do with their intellect. The word just means naive and gullible in the Bible. This is the person who goes through life seemingly unwilling to be serious about the brokenness and evil in the world. It's like they just they want to move on from it. They don't want to think about that. They seem to prefer being intellectually lazy so that they can just keep on playing. They are oftentimes the person who is easily influenced and persuaded uh, either because they're desperate for approval or because they just prefer comfort over deep reflection. Characters like this, you want some? It's the Lloyd Christmases of the world. From Dumb and Dumber, you know? It's Joey from Friends. It's, it's Pumbaa from Lion King. We love these characters, right? We, we, we love the gullible and the naive. But, but again, without a guide, without, without an awakening, the simple, they stumble right into trouble over and over and over again, causing hurt for them and others. And then you have the stubborn, the stubborn type. This probably doesn't need much clarification. And even if I give it, the stubborn in the room aren't listening to me. <laughs> but I'll do my best. The stubborn are just unwilling, right? Unwilling to think that there might be another option that is better than their first response to everything. And, they, and therefore, they just double down on what, they're all, what they've already been doing and what they learned the first time, and it was the right thing. That's the stubborn. Defensiveness is the preferred and automatic response to most things for this person. I probably don't need to give a character illustration because you're probably thinking of people right now in your life. You're like, that's him. That's her. But let's just do it anyway because it's fun. It's Draco Malfoy in Harry Potter. It's Gaston, right? in Beauty and the Beast. Sadly, until, and, and, and we laugh and we joke, but it is sad, friends. Sadly, until something grips the stubborn by the heart, I mean really grips them, they typically never have an awakening. They, and sadly, and, and by the way, this particular fool, the stubborn, is the most frequently mentioned in the wisdom literature of the Bible. Therefore, sadly, this person, it's probably the most common to one degree or another among all of us, the stubborn, defensive. We want to argue. We want to double down. We want to believe what we first heard is right, and it must be right, and it's always going to be right. Now, here's the thing. Here's a, here's a hopeful word for you. If you find yourself resonating with one of these types that I just laid out for us, you're not alone. First off, I'm with you, okay? I probably have all three in me, depending on the situation. If you resonate at all with any of these types, there's, that's wonderful news. That's one of the main themes of the book of Proverbs. It aims to grab your attention and make you receptive and teachable. That's what it's wanting to do, really, in the introduction, 
It's wanting to turn you into someone who's teachable. The counterintuitive nature to getting wisdom is not fake it till you make it, as the trope goes. That's not the theme of the wisdom literature. It's actually assume you're a fool. If you want to be wise, assume that you actually have foolishness inside of you. Proverbs 8, verse 34 says this, Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. So a wise person has a listening, watching, waiting way of showing up in the world and a way of showing up towards the Bible. They aren't just eager to be a learner. They have a kind of a patient way of sitting through the process, even if it's really difficult to grasp at first. And, and I guess a simple way of putting it is this. The wise people don't give up when they immediately or initially don't understand God in the text that they're reading. And the reason why I say this is this, is this will be really important for you as you enter into the wisdom literature of the Bible. Like if you're going to pick up a book like Proverbs or if you ever have picked up a book like Proverbs or a book like Ecclesiastes or a book like Job, um, you need to know that because... Particularly, this is true in a book like Proverbs, because oftentimes the truth of how to navigate life in various situations, that truth, how to do it, actually comes cumulatively. No one saying in the book of Proverbs will give you the whole picture. You have to keep reading. It's wanting to give it to you from different angles over and over and over again. You must read multiples to get the full picture, to get the real big idea uh, and to understand the, really the complexity of dealing with people and life and decision-making. Now, bear with me here for a second. Because I, I would like to offer a brave challenge to us this morning. If you want to be wise. And you're willing to accept my challenge. And it's okay if you're not ready. All right? But if you are honestly this morning sitting through this, and you're struggling to place a name, maybe, how you're liable in these areas that I mentioned. Because maybe that's you, and I'm not making fun of that because I'm not the scoffer. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, maybe you're honestly like, I don't know, maybe I'm this, maybe I'm that, I, I, you know. Maybe you're just, you have no idea. Or maybe, maybe you're just the type sitting in this morning, and you're just, you're just an eager learner, and you, you are, you're, you, you're, you're ready to go the extra mile. You're like, I want to be wise. Yeah, I want some of that. I, I, I want to be teachable and I want to learn. Okay, so here's the exercise for you. Ask a person that you trust in your life, and that might be for you, you're like, well, automatically, I don't have that. Come find me. I will not be mean to you. Ask a person that you trust in your life where you struggle or what you bring to relationships that fits one of these personifications. And beg this person that you ask. Some of you are already squirming in your seat. I can see it. <laughs> beg this person to be a truth teller to you. And listen to me. Whatever they say to you, do not defend yourself. Don't defend. Just take it in. Don't say, well, but, no, no buts, right? No buts. Just take it in. 
Because friends, here's, here's the fascinating thing about growing in wisdom. It's always, 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 always going to be a relational work. Always. This is, a, this is a, such an important truth that Christian people, church people, desperately need to understand, desperately need to hear something that I'm constantly reminding myself because it's like, oh yes, man, that is such a hard thing to realize. How you show up, how you are showing up in your relationships is how you're showing up in your Bible and with God. Every time. You think that you can separate them. You cannot. How you show up in your relationships with your spouse, with your kids, with your coworkers, whatever situation you're in, when you're at the store, no matter what, on the phone, no matter where you are, the way you're showing up in your relationships is the way you're showing up when you pick this up and you start to read it. It's how you're showing up when, you, when you're talking to God or you're dealing with God. They're, they're, they're connected. And I could, get, I could list all the scriptures that point to this reality, that these things are connected. I mean, why else would Jesus say the things that he says? Things like, how, you know, how will people know that you're my disciples? And I want to finish that sentence by the way you love each other. It's always connected, every time. And so if you want to grow in wisdom and you want to grow in hearing from God and understanding God and dealing with God, what's going on in your relationships? Because you, those can't be destructive over here, but me and God, we're good. What? It's saying that the truth is not in you. First John would say you're a liar. And so... These are hard conversations, I understand that. With time, these kinds of conversations might lead you, though, if, and, and I, it may not be overnight, I grant that, but over time, these kinds of hard conversations that, if you're willing to have them, might lead you to discover what you're deeply ashamed of and that you're trying to avoid. These, kinds of, these are the kinds of conversations that might also lead you uh, to something that you need to understand or address about God that you're struggling to avoid. Or that maybe it's something that you're struggling to trust him with. And by the way, this doesn't mean discovering these things and, and letting these things surface and come to the light. It, these are not signs that you're condemned at, at all. And, and, and by the way, the, uh, these kinds of conversations, I'm no masochist, friends. I, th th this is not meant to be self-punishing or something for us. These conversations is meant, when these things come up and you discover some of these things, it means that you're human. It's that you're, you're human. You're recovering your humanness. You're, you're recovering those things, and you're finally interested in learning what was lost in the garden. You want to come in contact with it. Oh, yeah, this is, what, this is what was lost in the beginning, this kind of trust. Um, this, this, this. I, 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 yeah, I don't need to. I don't need to be a god. I don't. I, I can't be God. I, I, that's not possible for me. It's conversations like this that I would say, and I got this from uh, John Ortberg. But it's conversations like this that are so helpful because it helps you get appropriately small, appropriately small. 
It's what Proverbs 1, 7 that you read it calls fear of the Lord. Repeatedly, the wisdom literature says that the beginning and process to gaining wisdom is through fear of the Lord. It's, in every, it's, in, it's, it's over and over again in the book of Proverbs. It's in the book of Psalms. It's in Ecclesiastes. And it's in Job. Over and over and over again, it says this, fear of the Lord is the beginning, which, by the way, is not terrorizing panic or dread. It cannot mean that. And here, I can prove it to you. Psalm 130, verse 3 through 4 says this, Lord, if you kept a record of our sins, oh, who, oh Lord, who could ever survive? But you offer forgiveness that we might learn to fear you. Forgiveness doesn't, lead, it, forgiveness doesn't lead you to be panicked and dread. Forgiveness does not make you feel like, oh my gosh, I'm going to be punished. It's the opposite. Forgiveness leads to this sense of reverence. It leads to this sense of awe. It, leads to this, it causes your heart to be gripped by beauty and love. You're wowed when you get forgiveness. And that's the real meaning, I think, of the phrase that you read in Proverbs at the very beginning of the introduction. This is the beginning. Reverence, awe. Be gripped by beauty. Be gripped by glory. Because you see, friends, the Bible knows something about us. No one really changes. No one really wises up until their heart is gripped. That's what I've learned the hard way in my own life. No amount of advice is going to stick. Until I'm really at the bottom Until I'm really humiliated. <laughs> That's why people never change until they have something like that, some horrible, hard experience. That's why people never change until they really get close to death. That's why people never change until they get floored by love, like through, through having a child. These are the kind of things that grip your heart so tight and squeeze it, you, you, you feel like you're going to die. And you start to change. That's how change works. And the Bible knows that about us as human beings. Nothing will grip your heart quite like being constantly aware that there is a God bigger and beyond us. And we are accountable to him. And then realizing that he's pursuing us in love, not anger and disappointment. Nothing will grip your heart like that. That should grip your heart when you get it in you. And if you show up in the world over and over and over again in every different situation that you encounter and you have that controlling principle that I am accountable to God, I am making myself appropriately small and I am accountable to him. But this one that is bigger and beyond me is coming for me and is not angry but loves me, fully knows me and yet loves me accepts me as I am and my story and says, are we ready to do something here, Matt? Until that grips my heart, there is not going to be change, not radical change. He knows our sins and faults. He knows our frailties. He knows we're running from them. He knows that we're trying to cover them up. He knows that we're trying to justify ourselves. He knows that we're deploying all of these little sin management systems that we think we have mastered. And he looks at that and he says, are you done yet? Are you done yet? He knows all of these things, and yet he still finds a way to love us, and he forgives us. The gripping thing about the cross of Christ, 
When you look at the cross, what do you see? It's because it is an important image and an important icon. What is it when you see the cross, what does it remind you of? The gripping thing about it, I suggest to you, is this. That in the beginning, when it all unraveled, we took from a tree to live out this illusion that we could become our own gods and figure out life apart from him. But instead of God wiping us out, he climbed up on the tree and died for you. That's the beauty of the cross. I don't fear God because he's petty, coercive, and controlling. I fear God because he made me, he knows me, and he has loved me better than anything or anyone else ever has and ever will. That is why I fear him. There is no amount of love that you could ever show me that will surpass what he has shown me. And I've experienced that in my own life. And that fear, in my better moments, gives me a receptivity to what I still need to learn. It gives me a receptivity when I sense I'm being defensive. It gives me a receptivity when I know I'm detaching myself from people because I'm scared or because I'm feeling misunderstood. That love makes me go, you don't need to do this. That fear prods me to listen and practice something different. And right now, I want you to hear this, that you are fully known and you are fully loved. And that actually, that message is hard to get deep in you. And it is hard to be the controlling message when you show up. In all of your different moments, it just leaks out all the time. The uh, author, the author, journalist David Brooks wrote in, a, I think, an op-ed piece a while back on the, on the topic of wisdom. He wrote this. People only change after they felt understood. The really good confidants, the people we go to for wisdom, are more like story editors than sages. They take in your story, accept it, but prod you to reconsider it so you can change your relationship to your past and your future. They ask you to clarify what, is, what it is you really want or what baggage you left out of your clean tail. They ask you to probe for deep, the deep problem that underlies the convenient surface problem you've come to them with. That's what wise people do. This, I think is what God is doing in Christ, that he's accepting our story and he's saying, now let's talk about it and let's change your relationship to your past and to your future. Communion, I think, is the reminder that you're understood and that he is safe to go to and so you can drop all of your God delusions. You can drop all of your ways of trying to be something that you're not, the way you're trying to protect, the way you're trying to cover up, the way you're trying to avoid. You don't need to do that. You're a human being with limitations. God is aware of it. He is, he is recovering it. And he is accepting you. Not by my work or your work, by his. This bread is his body that is broken for you. This cup of wine represents his blood that is shed to say, hey, it is safe to come to me and bring to me your mess. I'm fully aware of it and I forgive you and I love you now let's change. And until you know that, you're not going to change. Until you are gripped by that, you're not going to change. I am told this, I am told this, that what 
we repeatedly tell our children will become their inner voice as they get older. So you have probably an inner voice in your head of messaging that you were repeatedly told over and over and over again. And it might be a toxic one. And in some ways, we all have inner voices that are not healthy, that are not true, that are not good. Now, here's why I say that. Because when you turn to Matthew 7, it's the end of the great Sermon on the Mount that Jesus taught, that some of you are probably familiar with. And at the end of that, when Jesus says this, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. That wise people, Jesus says, are the people that hear me, Jesus, hear me and then practice. They're willing to hear me and they're willing to practice what I'm saying. What I'm saying to you as we come to the table this morning is this. You will never ever be willing to hear him and actually practice until you actually see that you are first understood and you are known and you are loved. You'll never do it. Ever. But if you know that he knows you fully to the bottom and he fully loves you and forgives you, then you can actually begin to hear and then you can actually begin to try to practice mistakes and all. And so if that's where you're at this morning and you want to be reminded of that and you want to take time to pray and think about all the ways and the different voices and different messages inside of your head and how you want to become someone that's teachable and you want to grow... You're invited to come forward to this station or this station, taking part, breaking off the piece of the bread and dipping it in the wine or the juice and celebrating his death in our place. If that's not where you're at, but you're on the fence and you have questions or you want to work through something, me or another pastor will be in the prayer room over here to the side. You are, you are so encouraged. We would love nothing more than to pray with you. Let us pray now. Father, as we, in a moment, come forward to the table and take a piece of the bread and we dip it in the, in the wine or the juice, as we think about what that means, may we just think about the fact that you've come for us. That wisdom is something that the, your, your word says that we go out, we search, we try to find, but the reality is you came to us. You came to us. You didn't wait. You didn't sit back. But you came to us. You came for us, and that is good news. And so as anyone who is up and ready for that and wants to come forward, Father, I pray, I pray that they do so with great gratitude and they come to the table with a sense of reverence and a sense of awe and a sense of wonder of what you've done, that we are fully known and yet fully loved. It's beyond my wildest imagination that a God would do that sort of a thing, but this is the God that you are. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. Learn more about our church and support by giving to the Mission of the Oaks at www.theoakscommunitychurch.org.